You're tuned to KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, K201HR 88.1 FM in Fort Bragg. We also stream live on the web at kzyx.org. And altogether, this is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. Good evening and welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. With me via Squadcast is Dr. Robert Spies, the co-host of this program, and a special guest tonight. Uh, Bob, do you want to introduce tonight's guest? Yes, we're very pleased to have uh, Nils Warnock, who is Director of Conservation Science at the Audubon Canyon Ranch uh, uh, on Tomales Bay uh, in, in Marshall, California. Uh, actually, come my old stomping ground years ago. Previously, Niels served eight years as the executive director of Audubon Alaska, or actually knew him there too, and as a vice president of the National Audubon Society. He has a PhD in ecology from the University of California, Davis, and uh, uh, San Diego State University. Niels started his ornithological career in West Marin at the Point Reyes Bird Observatory, where most recently he was the co-director of the Wetlands Division from about 2000 to 2008. Nils is a fellow of the American Ornithological Society and has over 30 years of experience in ecology and conservation of Pacific flyway birds, especially shorebirds. Uh, I'm really pleased to have you on the program, Nils. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, we usually ask our guests to tell us a little bit about their background and uh, how they got into what they're doing and a little bit about what you're doing uh, currently at uh, Audubon Canyon Ranch. I guess for me, I have a long, long history now. It, it surprised me actually how long it is um, in ornithology. And that started way back when, 19, probably 84, fresh out of college, University of Colorado. I moved to California to work for the point, what was then the Point Reyes Bird Observatory, now Point Blue. And PRBO was a real eye-opener for me. I started working on a shorebird study with uh, now-retired Gary Page, and I just really fell in love with birds. It was one of those aha moments of like, well, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. And and that's actually what I've done. So I, I volunteered at PRBO, worked there for probably four years, decided at that point I should do a get my PhD if I really wanted to do the research I wanted to do. Um, so I did that studying Dunlin, uh, looked at a wintering population of Dunlin in uh, Bolinas. At that time, I really got interested in sort of how birds use space. So I've that's been a constant thread in a lot of my work, using different types of technology to follow birds around, be it at local levels or migration levels. So after my PhD, I did uh, four years of postdocs in the West. Oh, I did a postdoc University of Nevada, Reno, spent a couple of years at Oregon State where my wife was, had started working on a PhD and did a postdoc there. And then in, in 98, moved back to PRBO and was there for about a decade before I, I did a couple of years in the oil spill response world for state of California working through UC Davis. And, and in 2010, the family and I, we made the big move up to Anchorage, uh, Alaska. A lot of birds I study go to Alaska. My, 
my wife and I had spent a lot of time up there. So it was a, an interesting move. It was a, a fascinating time working there. It was less doing research, more working on sort of federal land policy issues, drilling in the Arctic Ocean, Tongass National Forest, things like that. And, and then three years ago, I came back to California to work for Audubon Canyon Ranch, who I've known people who've worked here for many years. And for those of you who don't know Audubon Canyon Ranch, um, despite the name and despite our great uh, fondness for National Audubon, we're actually not part of Audubon. We're an independent 501c3. So we're an environmental conservation and education organization that was founded in 1962 to save a big um, heron rookery that down in Bolinas Lagoon, that's just north of San Francisco Bay. And today, ACR really, we act as a little bit more of a TNC model, nature conservancy model, where we're guardians of a system of nature preserves that span Marin, Sonoma, and Lake counties. And, um, and there, we have about 5,000 acres of ecologically important lands that were, have really been placed in our care by generous donors to uh, steward and protect in perpetuity. And, uh, and, and we do a lot of interesting work. We're doing a lot of work on birds, both monitoring bird populations and studying different aspects of bird ecology. Like we're using satellite tags to track great egrets and long-billed curlews. We're tracking mountain lions in Sonoma and uh, Lake Counties, trying to sort of create a favorable environment for both mountain lions and, and people, since mountain lions overlap on a lot of private lands. And we have a, a relatively new and, and just very exciting Fire Forward program, which is really trying to change the way that communities use good fires to help prevent catastrophic fires. And so a lot of work going on to that and as well as our education program. Well, there's a lot we could uh, explore. Uh, I don't think an hour is going to be enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the, the specific topic that uh, we were going to have you talk about today was your uh, shorebird research. Yeah. So, and I could, again, I could talk about shorebirds all day long, but I'm going to narrow it down. And we just sort of fortuitously have a paper coming out in, um, well, a journal, what used to be called the Condor, now called Ornithological Applications, where we describe the trends over the last 30 years of shorebird populations on, on Tomales Bay. For those of you who don't know Tomales Bay, it's, it's, it's a beautiful estuary. It's located about 60 kilometers to the north of San Francisco Bay, and it and it forms kind of the at one side the northeast side of the Point Reyes National Seashore. It's a it's a long narrow bay uh, with some of the largest eelgrass beds in California, which have a lot of implication for birds. Like if I look out my window right now, my office sits about 10 feet off of the bay here. Right now we have herring are running and we have one of the largest herring runs in the state here. 
And so there's seals and thousands of water birds out there feeding on herring right now. On the shorebird side, in, in some winters, Tamales Bay historically has, as far back as our count data go, we've had up to say 20,000 shorebirds that winter here on the bay. And so we wanted, we've been monitoring them for since 1989. John Kelly, the previous director of conservation science, he set the program up and we do four, five winter counts. And I think you have similar efforts, maybe not as often up in the Mendocino area, but on along the coast. And uh, we count, we count shorebirds. So we, we set out to analyze those shorebird numbers. And to put that in perspective, you know, into the continent-wide picture of how shorebirds are doing, in, in 2019, a paper came out in Science that, was, that looked at the trends of North American birds from 1970 to the present. And it's a, it's a depressing read, uh, really, uh, with some notable exceptions, but North American shorebird populations have declined 37% in total numbers since 1970. Um, so we were interested in seeing how, how our bird numbers were doing. So we looked at, we analyzed these shorebird trends over the, just for the winter months. And, um, and these data were collected mostly by volunteers. So I, I wanna give a big, lot of kudos to volunteer science initiatives, be it shorebird surveys, Christmas bird counts, iNaturalist, eBird. The volunteer participation is just critical for a lot of our wildlife management and monitoring, especially the monitoring side. And uh, so for those of you who do it out there in the KZYX world, that's a thank you. Thank you for doing that. And we, we would do ours with a team of 10 to 40 volunteers along with staff and set up in you know a repeatable way. We we do our counts on a consistent tide height and um, we cover about 15 areas simultaneously that cover all the all the shorebird habitat in Tamales Bay. Now, one of the things that we when we started thinking about, well, how are we going to analyze these data? Um, we wanted to factor in what we knew about what drives local wintering shorebird populations in this area. And so a couple of things I'll mention that we controlled for. So winter rainfall, we know that winter rainfall has a big impact on coastal shorebird numbers in the winter time. And typically the pattern is in wet years, you see lower numbers of at least certain species than in dry years, and I, I'll, I can talk about that later. I'll be keen to hear why. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a couple of things here. The other one are raptor populations, so hawks and falcons, and especially falcons or the bird or the raptors that eat birds and shorebirds. There's been a lot of work done in recent years looking at how these raptors, um, particularly falcons, can help will drive shorebird populations. They eat a lot of shorebirds. So we wanted to control for raptor numbers as well. Um, and then we had in, in around, oh, 2000 and 2005 or 2008, we had a big wetland restoration project 
come online in the south part of Tomales Bay where they restored pasture land next to the bay to, to tidal, tidal wetlands. So we wanted to factor that in too, because we want to know, okay, if we see a declining species, is that because of local impacts or is it, are there bigger issues going on? We wanted to help tease that apart. Yeah, it gets pretty tricky when you, one of the things about birds in general and shorebirds in particular is uh, they move so much. The migratory patterns are immense. And so trying to tease out what's causing a local population fluctuation becomes an, a really, really difficult job. Yeah, that's exactly it. Is it is. And you're so you're it, it's important that you, you know, in, in science that you make some hypotheses and then go out there and, and test them. So we had our hypotheses about the rainfall raptors. Um, wetland restoration. And the other one was we knew that the north and the south parts of Tomales Bay hydrologically act differently because of a variety of things, where fresh water comes in, the proximity to the Pacific Ocean, et cetera. So we also accounted for that in our analyses. And a um, little bit now on the results, and then we can talk really what's the most interesting thing is why we're seeing some of these things. We counted over the 30 years, we documented over 30 species using, using the bay, but there's, there's just really a, a handful of them that are the most, most abundant um, species. Our most abundant species here is the Dunlin in the wintertime, probably similar Mendocino coastline if you're in an estuary system well it's just kind of interesting because uh we don't we have very small estuaries yeah. here and they don't seem to hold dunlin in the winter they they pass through in the fall huh. and early winter we've we've done christmas bird counts here at fort bragg for 10 years now and i don't think we've ever had a dunlin oh is that the, right on the fort bragg christmas count very strange yeah. They, we, yeah. they have been picked up once in a while down on the manchester count where there is a little bit better estuary at the mouth of the Garcia River. They stop off here for a little while and then they head for Tomales Bay. <laughs> yeah, or or further south or there's also large numbers that winter up in um Humboldt and then up Oregon, Washington. Um yeah. so that's another story I'll talk about is what's what's happening with Dunlin. Um so Dunlin have been our most abundant wintering species. They still are. And then there's three species that sort of fluctuate on who's next most abundant, least sandpiper, marbled godwit, and western sandpiper. And western sandpiper, now we put an asterisk next to it because they went from being our second most abundant species to now they're getting hard to find in the wintertime. So they've decreased a lot. Anyway, so the, our, our most abundant species tend to be Dunlin, least Marbled Godwit, Western Sanderling towards the coast, Willet and and Dowichers, and um, and we lump Dowichers just because of the the difficulty of identifying wintering Dowichers. Any of you birders out there know that short bill versus long bill is tough. Um, One of those classic dumb birder jokes is every time you see a Dowicher, somebody has to say, "Is it a short billed or a long billed?" And somebody else has to answer, "Yes." Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, just to digress for a second, which I, I love to do, um, 
Dowitcher is the only species of bird I've put radio tags on where I wasn't actually sure what species I was radio tagging. So, <laughs> yeah, not the place you want to be when you're putting yeah. radio tags on. So there we have it. You know, you, we've got Tomales Bay, historically an important shorebird population. And what we found was... Um, as depressing, if not more depressing than science, we actually have seen a decrease in sort of average total numbers in the wintertime of over 66% in, in individual birds. And uh, so we've seen a big drop in numbers of shorebirds using Tomales Bay since the late 1980s. I'll throw a couple of caveats in there, but um, just in that the, the late 80s were a period, if we look at some longer data sets, and there's a great one from Bolinas Lagoon just to the south of us that PRBO had maintained, um, and we now uh, help do the count, that started in the early 70s. And, and th those data show that um, there was the eight, late 80s we, was a high period for coastal, for this part of the coast, for shorebird numbers. And um, but they also show this decline since the late '80s into the into the present. Um, so we'll we'll talk a little bit about what re reasons are. But I, I want to mention a few species that I worry the most about. Probably the two that I worry the most about are um, Dunlin and Westerns, um, and not just because I've I've studied both of those quite a bit, but Dunlin, they're down about 77%. Westerns, as I alluded to earlier, they're down 94%. Um, wow. Their numbers in the wintertime. So they've really, really uh, gone down. And we have some other species, numerically not as important, but who've also seen, you know, declines of over 60, 70%. So we, uh, of the, I, Let's see how many we analyze trends for 14 regularly occurring species. So what that means is we we arbitrarily picked species where we we saw them at least in 20 of the 30 years of our surveys. So because we get a number of species like one year we had a rough. Well, we're not going to analyze trends for the one rough. Um, <laughs> so we have these 14 regularly occurring species, and and of those 14 species. We had declines in 10, increases in three species, and, and marbled godwits, really, we had no statistical change in their, in their numbers. Like I said, the Dunlin Westerns, they, they seem to be the ones really getting hit numerically, at least. But then we had a couple of, you know, positives, least sandpipers have increased. Do you all get those on your uh, Mendocino count? I would expect you do. Yeah, yeah, they pass. Yeah. They pass by, and, and a few stay for the winter. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, yellow legs, and these for us in the winter. Well, in general, West Coast, our yellow legs are predominantly greater yellow legs, but um, those those two species actually have increased. So overall picture, not not particularly great. So then the question is, well, what's what's going on? That's really what I think yeah. we could spend a lot of time talking about. And, and how do you tease apart these local effects versus 
more regional, global. And so let me talk a little bit about these local effects and I'll pause in a second if you guys have any questions in the meantime, but I'll talk about a little bit about what I think is going on locally versus regionally. I'll stop there for a minute. Uh, I did have a question. I don't know if this is the best time for it, but um, uh, there are other shorebird surveys I know uh, in Alaska, the, the one that I was familiar with, uh, although I'm not a birder, I uh, did a lot of work up there. And uh, yeah, the Copper River uh, has a, a huge uh, populations of shorebirds that migrate through. Yeah. And, and the Prince William Sound Science Center has been uh, monitoring those for some time. Mm -hmm. um, have, have you looked at that data set? And, and I guess the question is, generally, uh, do, do you see any correlations between what you're seeing uh, locally in Tomales Bay and other large surveys such as that carried out in uh, yeah. uh, uh, Copper River Delta? Yeah, um, the great question, Bob. And, um, and definitely Copper, I'm very familiar with the Copper. I worked a lot with Marianne Bishop, who that was really the lead on a lot of that work, at least in recent years, the last 15 years or so. And the copper actually isn't monitored well from the perspective of annual repeated surveys. It's a big giant area, as you know, 100 kilometers long, vast mudflats, hard to get to. And really the only way to survey that area is via airplane or airboats and so it's quite expensive yeah i went out on an airboat with uh, marianne uh, yeah once yeah. Uh, it's a pretty impressive area it is it is wild i one time i was out on an airboat with her and it's hailing and we're getting blasted by hail and we're bouncing along out there on those big mud flats it's quite a <clears throat> we had these great great big uh suits that we wore that were like uh like like a jet pilot and had his huge helmet and yeah <laughs> protected the, from the elements it was a pretty crazy uh the dry suits in case you fall in yeah <laughs> yeah yeah right <laughs> yeah i had to wear those as well um so yeah that site actually isn't isn't monitored that well from the annual the hartney bay there they're trying to get repeat counts they are standardized repeat counts, but there are some other counts going on, and I'll talk about some of those as I mention things. The best counts, well, Christmas bird count for the West Coast, while it has some issues with it, is a great, great data set, and we use that for comparison in our paper. We talk about those results a lot. Bolinas Lagoon is another one, and I'll also highlight Point Blue's current efforts um, Point Blue has for many years been interested in monitoring shorebird populations along the Pacific Flyway. They were the real pioneers in, in getting the first real counts for the Pacific Flyway of how many birds are passing through, et cetera, during both spring, winter migrations and in, and in the um, fall. And they've continued that. And I, I suspect your Mendocino count data go into that data set. So we're, we're starting to accumulate the necessary counts, but in general, and this has been a, something the shorebird community has talked about a lot, uh, it, for the Pacific Flyway, we, don't, we historically have not had great 
monitoring data to make these comparisons. So, so that makes these counts, these small counts like Tomales Bay or Mendocino or Bolinas Lagoon or might be Grays Harbor, um, et cetera, they become very valuable to, the, to our efforts to understand what's going on with uh, regional and flyway level and global bird populations, in this case, shorebird populations. I'll get back to that a little bit. Looking at our local causes, you know, I mentioned that we looked at rainfall, we looked at raptor populations, we looked at the effects of that wetland restoration project in Tomales Bay and uh, differences between the North and the South Bay. When we put those into our analyses, and I, I won't really go into the details on how that's done, but if you're interested, we'll get a uh, link to the paper posted. What we found is that for, for rainfall, that was in what I'm gonna say the top model. So we, we modeled these different scenarios and came up with our, our best fit model. And um, rainfall was in, in the top model for 10 species. So i.e. that was rainfall proved to be a very important effect on shorebird populations in Tomales Bay. Not surprising. What we found in other places, Bolinas Lagoon, part of my PhD work on Dunlin, where I had radio tags on Dunlin, was looking at that exact effect. We noticed in wet years, we had lower numbers, and we speculated that, that many of these shorebirds move into the Central Valley. And um, most of you are probably familiar with the valley, and you know in the wintertime, it, there's a lot of habitat out there. There's um, both rice fields that are getting flooded and drawn down. There's the, when the rainfall hits, there's vast amounts of fields that get flooded. And certain species really respond to that. Dunlin is one of them. So, um, so for most of our species, indeed, we found that uh, the, we had fewer of that species in wet winters than we did in, in dry winters. So our analysis controls for that. The, the exception was the willet. They actually increase on the coast, which I find kind of fascinating. I mean, they're not a species you typically find in the valley. Um, and it may be they move off of the, in these wet years, they move from the coastline, like the actual beachfront coastline to these more protected interior estuaries in, in those wet years. That's that's kind of my guess on the rainfall side. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So the the, the theory is that uh, what's happening in wet years when there is a lot of rainfall is the western sandpipers are actually, uh, and Dunlin, are predominantly going over into the Central Valley instead of coming down the coastline and, and wintering in Tomales Bay. Not so much westerns. Their rainfall wasn't as important for westerns and that and they don't really move into the valley in the winter. You'll see them there in during spring fall migration, but but we controlled for that. And if you look at count data, so this gets back to Bob's question: Well, how does this compare to other count data? There are some count data for the valley, and during the times we've seen decreases in um, in say Dunlin, they haven't seen increases in Dunlin. Hmm. So the, our thinking is that well, they're not while rainfall could account for decreases, it's not. 
where something else is going on. It's an important variable. It, it explains variation in our model, but it doesn't explain why they're decreasing, especially like in recent years where we've continued to see decreases, say in Dunland, it's been quite dry. And we would have expected to see bump ups in the populations and we're not. You're really not looking at the population per se, but you're looking at density on particular habitats, or maybe uh, are these fluctuations such that uh, reproductive and, and mortality effects uh, could be driving the numbers to some extent? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to, I'm sort of leading to that is that for most of our species, and this sort of gets ahead of in the story, but for most of our species, there's more global issues are affecting the populations. It might be on the breeding ground. It might be on, you know, death by a million cut scenario, which is what I think is going on for say Western sandpipers. They're probably, they, you know, they're seeing habitat degradation. They're a in the wintertime, they really sit on the coast in coastal estuaries all the way down into central South America. And their habitat, coastal habitat all over the world is disproportionately affected by humans. I mean, our, our human population in my lifetime is more than doubled. It'll double again in 30 years. Huge amount of pressure on coastal habitat. And it, for some of these, I think for all of these birds, we're seeing, you know, death by a million cuts of huge gradual degradation. That's one one issue they're facing but there's yeah. others and westerns have a uh, i don't know if it's unique but they have an interesting feeding mechanism right it might make them uh more more vulnerable yeah. to yeah. disturbance uh than most i mean they're they're not it looks like they're out there eating bugs and things but it turns out most of their diet is actually slime is that right yeah we we like to call that it's a it's a highly scientific term snot feeding. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Westerns. I'll digress again. Um, that that's a fascinating topic. Snot feeding. What what they're really doing? What they found in these very clever experiments, thanks to folks like Bob Elner with the Canadian Wildlife Service, they looked at the tongues of these westerns under electron microscopes, and they found that they, especially the males have this bushy little tip of their tongue. And they did these very clever experiments that using high, high def video and other things, um, stable isotope analysis, et cetera. And they found that these birds, these Westerns, especially the males, they'll dab their tongue on the, on the surface of the mudflat where there's biofilm. And in that biofilm are diatoms and things these little microscopic organisms and these, the Westerns will actually get up to 30, 40, 50% of their daily energetic requirements from just feeding on that biofilm. That was only discovered in the last, oh, I'd say 10, 15 years. Those diatoms have a distinctive carbon isotope signature. That's right. Yeah. 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 Well, you're probably, you're an invertebrate guy and mud guy, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did did my master's degree in the mud. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in Tomales Bay. In Tomales Bay, right? Even yeah. better. My my wife was very excited to find out that you studied polychaetes and things like that. I was 
telling her about that. She loves invertebrates. Did a lot of time at Bodega Marine Lab, sifting. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Sifting mud. So, so um, let me go forward a little bit more, and then we can maybe drop back on some of this. So, yeah. so rainfall had an effect, but controlling for that, we still see negative trends. Um, raptors. Very interesting story. There's been a lot written in recent years about the effects of raptors on shorebirds. So the story, and most of you probably know that, um, we had the DDT era where all our, our um, raptor populations, our eagles, our hawks, our falcons, they just tanked because of eggshell thinning and um, so reproductive declines in in the raptors and but populations have been coming back since since the you know 80s probably and the falcons especially are terrors on particularly the small shorebirds dunlin and westerns are two of the favorites for merlin and peregrine so so we thought we would see a big impact of, of raptor increase. We know at Tomales Bay, our raptor populations have increased, um, especially in the South Bay, especially where, the, where we had the uh, wetland restoration project happen. Um, and, and we thought that raptors, the effect of raptors would be in more of our models, but it really only showed up in a couple of bird species. Um, we had two species, Sanderling and Kildeer. Their numbers actually increased with increasing raptor numbers, which is a little puzzling to me. Maybe um, that's because they're both attracted to the same kind of habitat. Kildeer tend to be a more upland species, um, and Sanderling are more on the open coast beaches, so not out on the mudflats. And then willets show the pattern you would predict. They, their numbers decreased when you had increasing raptor numbers. But overall, raptors didn't really factor into our analyses all that much. And, and that was a bit of a, a surprise for me. I would think that habitat destruction, as you said earlier, by human uh, usage and increasing human population and so forth, is a huge uh, regional effect. Um, yeah, but then in Tomales Bay, I would guess that there hasn't been much change in habitat because it's it's pretty well protected. There's not a lot of of uh, development in in the uh, in the mudflats there. Um, I would think. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. And so we looked at that, and well, there's the one potentially positive impact of this Giacomini wetland restoration. Um, and, and that's actually kind of an interesting story in and of itself in that John Kelly, my predecessor, did an analysis in the years just after the Giacomini wetland restoration project be, went into effect. They broke the dikes. They let these pasture lands become tidally influenced. And you saw this big increase in shorebird numbers in the, in the South Bay. And they were using Giacomini but what's happened, I think, but since then we've seen decreases and I think what's going on, and this is relevant to other places like San Francisco Bay, where there's a lot of habitat restoration going on, especially of salt ponds. As these tidal habitats get vegetated, you know, shorebirds typically don't like vegetated habitat. They like open mudflats. 
They like open visibility. And um, there's only a few species like least sandpiper, which have increased, and yellow legs, which have also increased, that really, you know, respond to vegetation. Willet is another one. So I think in the case of Tomales Bay, we had a favorable increase in habitat that we saw a spike, a positive spike for that part of the bay for shorebirds, but since then is, has decreased as it's become increasingly vegetated. That's actually a concern of mine for San Francisco Bay where, you know, San Francisco Bay, for those of you, have, especially if you've flown over it, you see a lot of salt ponds. And the salt ponds, I, I've done a lot of work in these salt ponds. It's a weird habitat, but it's a, it can be super productive for shorebirds. Shallow habitat, which they like, open, which they like. And, and if the salinity levels are right, super abundant food resources. And, and in recent years, we've been, we've been renovating those tidal, those salt ponds back to tidal marsh. And the prediction, we did a lot of modeling of that in the old days. The prediction is we'll eventually see decreases in shorebird numbers in the places that really are allowed to revegetate. Does the, um, the fact that they don't like vegetated uh, uh, flats as much, is, is that have anything to do with small mammal predation? You know, I, I think predation comes into factor there, but it's probably more just about accessibility to their food. The food is less accessible. You have more interference from the vegetation. You know, a lot of these shorebirds are feeding on smaller invertebrates and they're going for their probing or picking. And yeah, or in the case of Western sandpipers, they're just feeding on that biofilm, and there's yeah. probably less of that where it's vegetated. The vegetation tends to form those hummocks, and right, yeah, get that. yeah, yeah. So, so from the local effects, you know, we found no real smoking guns that would say, ah, this is, you know, we, we, Giacomini, the wetland restoration, I think really contributed to the increase of least sandpipers and yellow legs um, at Tamales Bay. But otherwise, as, as uh, I think, Tim, you were the one who said it, there's not a lot been big habitat changes in the bay. Now, there is one exception, um, and we didn't have the data to analyze this, but there's a lot of shellfish industry in the bay, especially oysters. And um, and oysters are, we've, what's happened with the oyster farming here is while their footprint hasn't increased a lot, their production in their lease tracks. So oysters are grown out in the, in the subtitle typically. Um, I don't know how much you get that in Mendocino. Humboldt's another big place for oysters. But there are some potential uh, issues with oyster farming in shorebirds. And the one study that's been done on it, the, actually the two species that were found to be negatively impacted by the oyster shellfish are Dunlin and, and Westerns, um, are two species with the biggest declines. But I'll hasten to add that I think for both Dunlin and Westerns, probably bigger reasons for their declines are um, are more global issues than these local issues. But that has stimulated our interest. One of the things this monitoring works helps us do is to fine tune our knowledge and, and 
focus our attention on potential problem areas. And so we're this year have been starting up some studies looking at how Dunland populations move around shellfish, the shellfish industry. I was going to ask, um, did the, uh, the abandonment of the uh, oyster farming in Drake's Bay, did that provide an opportunity to, uh, maybe there wasn't enough baseline data, but an opportunity to do kind of a natural experiment on the yeah. effect of oyster farming? Yeah. Imagine, imagine the oysters are still there, but yeah. the farmers aren't. Yeah, the farmers. Yeah, I think that, you know, probably the oyster farming is generally, you know, not they're not terrible side effects from it. Um, there's a few things up in Washington. They spray mudflats to kill uh, ghost shrimp. They don't like that. Um, but mm-hmm. down here, it's, it's, it's fairly benign, but it does take up habitat. And then there's disturbance when they go in and out on their boats. And that's that's one thing we have seen in the Bay is there's been a huge increase in production of oysters in those lease tracks. And um, because there's a lot of people out here and they like to eat oysters. And uh, so there's a lot of incentive. So we're we're starting to look at that. But let's let's switch over because we're going to run out of time and um, (laughs) talk a little bit about some of the bigger issues um, that are going on for shorebirds around the world. And there's two, and they're both very related. One is our human population still going up at a rapid, rapid pace. And like I said, humans like coastal habitat. So it's disproportionately affected. And then as a result of you know our increasing human population, we're seeing a lot of climate change and Notably, temperatures are going up. So Alaska, where I've worked a lot, that's warming at triple the rate of the global averages. I mean, it's it's remarkable how quickly we're seeing change in places like the Arctic Ocean, sea ice. The loss of permanent sea ice is is just astounding in my lifetime. In my working lifetime, it's an astounding change. So we're seeing some rapid, rapid changes and some of that may account for declines in in some of our species. And uh, I'm going to talk about one of my favorites, the Dunlin again, because Dunlin, one of the pieces of the story for Dunlin might be that Dunlin, it's been suggested that Dunlin are increasingly wintering farther north. Um, And so we're seeing declines, not necessarily because their populations are declining, but because their ranges are contracting northward. And, uh, I'll give you an example of a bird we know more about that on, which is the brant, the Pacific black brant. Uh, if, if you're a goose hunter, you, undoubtedly you know brant. And brant, they they breed up in the Arctic and uh, they come down in the fall. They stage at Eisenbeck Lagoon on the Alaska Peninsula where you have some of the largest. Brant are herbivores, so they love eelgrass. They, they feed on eelgrass. And where you have eelgrass, you find brant typically. And so Eisenbeck Lagoon has some of the biggest seagrass beds in the world. And historically, brant would stage, they would they would go from their breeding grounds to Eisenbeck. They would fatten up there in the fall on seagrass. And then they would fly nonstop down to wintering areas from California down into Baja in Mexico. Well, in recent years, in the, the last few decades, 
increasingly Brandt are not migrating from Eisenbeck. They're staying at Eisenbeck. And um, David Ward and other USGS biologists up in Alaska have shown that what's happening at Eisenbeck is as it gets warmer, there's fewer winter days where there's ice that comes in and covers the eelgrass beds. So that's allowing the brant to stay there in winter. And we suspect that for some of our shorebird species, that's a similar story. And I, there's three in particular for me that come to mind. One is, uh, well, rock sandpipers never been super abundant down here, but our numbers of rock sandpipers have been declining. And there's been suggestions that, again, they're just staying farther north. Ruddy turnstone is another one. Historically, we ruddy turnstones were pretty common down here. Now they're quite rare. Like we rarely see them in the wintertime on Tamales Bay. In the pre-80s, they were, you know, fairly, they weren't numerically common, but you'd see them often. Um, and that's another species that's been suggested that is declining northward because it's just getting warmer. And so Dunlin, Dunlin is, is another one that their numbers might be declining. Now that said, I think they're also, their global population is declining. So getting back to, to Bob's point as well, what do, what do other counts tell us um, for Dunlin? Tamales Bay, we saw big decline. Uh, Bolinas Lagoon, I mentioned, they've been counting birds for, oh, 50 years now. They've seen declines since the 70s to the present, um, significant declines. Central Valley, they haven't seen declines, but um, so that's sort of an ambivalent story. Christmas bird count data for um, California, They've detected significant declines for Oregon and Washington. The trend on Christmas bird counts, while not significant, are to be declining populations. Same with British Columbia. So I think probably for Dunland that there, there may be some population declines going on at the same time we're seeing some range contraction. Yeah. You know, the, the Central Valley, I just mentioned this, it's a, a subject I'd kind of like to get somebody on this program to talk specifically about is the the change in agricultural practice and uh, as in particularly yeah. the fall and winter yeah. management of rice rice yeah. fields out there and that is potentially having a pretty significant effect on Dunlin in particular because they really yeah. they time the the drying out and flooding of those fields yep. uh, to coincide yeah. with Dunlin migration so that they have uh, they have the right water depth uh, in advance yeah, well, of the arrival of the birds. Yeah, really TNC story. and Point Blue and um, Audubon, California, they all have, they've had this really fantastic program working with rice farmers to exactly to do that, to help promote water, to get water on the landscape when the birds need it. Because the Central Valley, the story is, it's all about water and and decreasing water for wildlife. And so we saw the great, you know, destruction of wetlands in the, in the early 1900s as they were filled in. Central Valley lost probably 90% of its freshwater wetlands. And some of that has been replaced by what to me is somewhat ironic, a very wasteful water industry, rice, 
but it has terrific wildlife benefits for certain bird species. And I think that's really saved a lot of our duck populations, our goose populations, some of our shorebird populations. And if that goes away, which, you know, you look at the water predictions for the West, our birds are going to really, they'll, they'll really suffer. Yeah. So then the other one is, you know, the general habitat destruction. So Western sandpiper, I think, is a, is a great example of, um, as I said earlier, where I, I think their population, their populations are uh, decreasing worldwide. In if you look Christmas bird count, they're decreasing in California, decreasing in Oregon, decreasing in Washington. The trend is towards a decrease in British Columbia, although not a lot of them winter up there. Um, so the signals for westerns are decreasing population. And, and that, I think, reflects the state of, of the world. Heavy impact on tidal flats. Bob and I talked a little bit earlier about the bar-tailed godwit, and um, they use the East Asian Australasian flyway. And bar-tailed godwits during migration stop at the Yellow Sea. And, you know, in a five-year period at the Yellow Sea, um, around China, North, South Korea, thanks mostly to China, South Korea, they filled in more intertidal mudflats there that exist in the lower 48 states. So, but, you know, we don't have to look too far. California's filled in tremendous amount of their intertidal mudflats. San Francisco Bay, all of our coastal estuaries have been severely impacted, or almost all of them by by infilling. Um, and you go to Europe, the Netherlands, you know, there's just tidal restoration. It's cheap land to reclaim. And uh, so that's, I think, hitting our shorebirds. And that you combine that with sea level rise, and that's a, a tough double hit for, for many of our shorebird populations. Interesting about the possible effect of the warming climate changing their their migration patterns. I mean, that's a pretty spectacular effect because the migration is such a huge thing, and it it imposes such a huge energy cost on the birds. I wonder if some of those species are actually benefiting because they don't have to migrate as much. I'm thinking specifically of the brant. If a brant doesn't have to fly from Alaska to Mexico and can just hang out in a lagoon in southeast Alaska because it's not freezing over anymore, that has to be a huge benefit to the individual and maybe the species. Yeah, well, I, certainly that's an argument to be made. And then, um, unfortunately, with, as it gets warmer and warmer, it has more and more other consequences for these birds. So, like for eelgrass beds, we're starting, I, I think one of the the concerns are disease hitting the eelgrass beds. And there's a, um, a, I think it's a virus hitting eelgrass beds down throughout the West uh, that seems to be temperature related, water temperature related. So, you know, back in the 30s, the uh, Tomales Bay and other places were really whacked by uh, some disease, uh, yeah. the eelgrass beds there. That's right. And so, you know, all of these things, it, combine. And so the question then for the birds is, can they adapt to that quickly enough in this rapid, yep. what we call, you know, and it's part of our mission of ACR, our rapidly changing world. I talk a lot about that 
and it, you just create these mismatches. And uh, so for some species, it, they'll handle it, others won't handle it. But eventually, you know, you run out of space to move northward to. That's the, the scarier part. Yeah, and it just completely disrupts a lot of the ecological systems when things don't get as cold as they uh, have been yeah, yeah. adapted for. The, the eelgrass, yeah, that's a really bad news if they're getting a disease that's eerily familiar. You know, we're still looking at the after effects of the sea star wasting disease on our nearshore marine yeah. environment here, uh, which is, you know, just massively disrupted the exactly, entire yeah. nearshore ecosystem. Nils, do you, do you know if anybody is uh, uh, monitoring eelgrass beds uh, uh, anywhere in California? But I was thinking particularly of Tomales Bay. Yeah. There's various efforts on eelgrass. It's getting a lot of attention. Um, and there's, you know, various, I've sat on a few committees. I've gotten quite interested in eelgrass and also herring, which come in to, to uh, spawn on eelgrass in part. And um, so there's various efforts. They seem to be rather intermittent, but um, they're, there are monitoring efforts along the whole West Coast. And so that's that's happening. Yeah, that's a yeah. big concern up in yeah. Humboldt Bay. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on those eelgrass beds up there because, uh, as I understand it, the, the zone where eelgrass is favored coincides with the zone where oyster farming is favored. And so they want to expand the oyster farms and it would come at the expense of the eelgrass. Yes, yeah, Audubon, California has done a lot of work on that issue and trying to work with the, the industry to mitigate some of that. Yeah, it's a it's a problem, you know, and that's the same problem we see here in Tomales Bay. Right now, the, you know, the industry is not allowed in to, to uh, build in eelgrass beds, but the eelgrass beds move around. That creates problems for the industry. So There's a beautiful eelgrass bed uh, north of Hog Island that goes yeah. on for quite a ways and yeah well we own, yeah we own a big chunk of that land next to it tom's point um i wanted to end on a a more positive because the the story i just told is a little depressing i always find big declines <laughs> but i, I do want to note you know that science paper I, i'm going to come back to that 2019 science paper that looked at bird populations in north america and while most of it was a pretty grim picture there were the big bright spot were waterfowl one of the big bright spots so to me the biggest bright spot were waterfowl so waterfowl numbers instead of declining 37 percent like dunlin they went up 56 percent and my immediate question so I, I gave a talk about this in uh, the western hemisphere shorebird meeting that was down in panama last year it hit it just really struck me as like, well, waterfowl, the shorebirds, especially on the interior, but also on the coast, use a lot of the same habitats as waterfowl. Why are they doing so well? And our shorebird population not doing well? And of course, an immediate thing is, is you look at where where's the money? And um, a lot of money, billions and billions of dollars is spent on waterfowl habitat restoration through groups like Ducks Unlimited, through um, NACA, the North American Waterfowl Conservation Act. There's been a lot of money that's gone into waterfowl. 
not only habitat acquisition, but management. And, um, and I, I think that's one of the keys is that, and, and the other is that, that, that the waterfowl world really manages in a real scientific way. They set out, they have set goals for what they want to achieve in productivity. It, anybody who's a duck hunter knows that, you know, some years you can hunt this species, other years you can't. And that's determined by these, these committees. And they're looking at their target numbers. And if they don't meet them, then they cut the hunts, et cetera. But they've managed their populations pretty heavily. And so what it says to me is that, you know, while some of our problems aren't going to go away just with management, we can do better for our shorebirds with better management. So I, I did want to get that in there because I think that's an important thing. It's not it's not just totally out of our control. There's a lot of things that we can do to help not only shorebird populations, but all of our bird populations and to mitigate the effects of this increasing human population, a warming environment, et cetera. That's a great takeaway point that, you know, if we, if we have sufficient will and, and we just want to, <laughs> we actually can make a pretty significant difference. I'm going to take this opportunity, by the way, to uh, for a shameless plug for the Mendocino Coast Audubon Society. Our chapter presentation on Monday, February 22 is going to be about just exactly what you just mentioned. Uh, we're going to have Carolyn Brady, who works for the California Waterfowl Association, and her topic is managing breeding waterfowl on a landscape yeah. dominated by agriculture. So... That's our Zoom meeting on Monday, the 22nd of February, and go to mendocinocoastaudubon.org to find the link for that. Nils, thank you. Th thank you for being on, Nils. You uh, did a great guest, uh, extremely knowledgeable, and uh, a lot of interesting stories to tell about these uh, wonderful birds that we see in our shorelines. Well, well, thanks to you guys. I always appreciate people that are sort of laying the stories out, communicating, and I think that uh, we need to do that. That's actually one of my, as a scientist and as a, an advocate for, for birds and other wildlife, we, we need to do a better job of that. So I, I greatly appreciate the opportunity and the time that you all spend creating these interesting stories. You've been listening to The Ecology Hour on KZYX. Our guest tonight was Dr. Nils Warnock, Director of Conservation Science at Audubon Canyon Ranch. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.